Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Welcome to City Church. Uh, If this is your first or second time here, special welcome to you. Um, We uh, we love, uh, this summer's just been not overwhelming in a bad way, but overwhelming in a good way in terms of just meeting lots of new people that are checking out this new church for the first time. And it's been really, really fun. Um, And so here at City Church, we talk a lot about um, following in the way of Jesus and He is the whole reason that we're here. Uh, But there are a few little values that we feel like uh, expresses our discipleship um, to Jesus, which is family, mission, presence, formation. We talk a lot about those here. And specifically in August, we're doing something a little bit unique. Uh, We're doing missions month. So talking about that second value that we have. And, uh, And so One thing we're doing, we're going through a series called Crazy Faith, but a big thing we're doing is highlighting a different um, missionary or missions organization that we're supporting every week. And uh, and last week we met Kara. She uh, is doing all kinds of things in different places in Africa and India and then also in Mexico, like really honing in on poverty ministry and how to do that well. And then this week um, we were going to hear from my like mentor, good friend. His name's Chris Hornbrook. He's starting a church in Montana. So cities need good churches. Also rural communities need good churches. And so he started a church in San Diego. He was my youth pastor. He is the one that told me uh, halfway through college, you know, you should think about starting a church, which was so silly because I was like majoring in finance. So that would never happen. But here we are, and, uh, and I owe so much of my relationship with the Lord and certainly owe like my interest in church planting to Chris, and, uh, and so we've gone through a pretty big transition here at City Church, uh, and so when I filled him in on what was going on, he said, what can I do? Like, how can I help? And I was like, I don't know. There's not really anything. I said, I really don't want to preach a whole lot in August. That'd be great, but you're like, he's six weeks from starting a church. He's got like 17 kids or five. And uh, I was like, you're in Montana. I was like, I don't know. There's nothing. And he's like, no, I'm coming. <clears throat> and uh, I was like, seriously, there's a number of people that could preach on August 8th that don't have to fly from Montana. And he said, no, bro, I, I need to see what God's doing in Cincinnati. And you guys, it meant so much to me that uh, a mentor of mine would say, I want to see what God's doing through a church that you helped start, and I want to invest in it. And, uh, and so today we support this church plant in Montana, and uh, we were going to hear from Chris until about 15 hours ago when his flight got canceled. <laughs> so you're still hearing from Chris, just not that one. Um, so thanks, United. You guys are great. Uh, I am I'm so sad because he is amazing, and I wanted him to meet my church family. Also, you guys were going to be really blessed hearing from him, but instead, 
you get me. So this is fun. Um, so this is a 15-hour-old message, seven and a half of which we're sleeping because I'm not willing to give up that part of my life. And uh, we're going through a series called Crazy Faith. We started this in August. And here's the premise of what we've been talking about, and important to know, especially if you're new, is uh, there are things in our faith. And we want to make this following Jesus as relatable and as accessible as possible. But at the end of the day, there are just things that are a little bit crazy. That if the outside world was to look at this, they would say, that's crazy. First of all, our faith, as much as we want to make this sound normal, our faith is based on a guy that rose from the dead. That's crazy. That's just, and we can't get rid of that. Like, that's the crux of the whole faith in Jesus. And so we're going through different ideas of what's crazy. And so uh, Catherine and I were coming back from a family vacation to St. Louis, of course, uh, with my side of the family, because who doesn't want to go on vacation to St. Louis? And uh, we found out the plane was canceled, and so she ended up driving, and I'm just kind of typing away uh, yesterday, and I was talking to her, and I was like, okay, tell me some things that are crazy (laughs) about being a Christian. And one of the things that we determined, which this is like right below resurrection, is, guys, we believe in a really old book. And that's, I mean, I want to tell you that's rational, but it's also a little bit crazy. I mean, the outside world would look, and they do look at this and say, like, there is no way that you can put your faith in, um, in what this book is telling you because it's just so old. And so um, let's be honest, it's a little bit crazy to believe in such an old book. And so I want to talk about the Bible this morning. Huh? Yeah, who's ready? Who's excited? Yes, we all love the Bible. I want to talk about the Bible. And what we're going to do is I'm going to overwhelm you with facts for the next 15 minutes, but do not worry. Because relevance is coming. Relevance is coming, but I'm going to speak quickly. I'm going to tell you, and almost all of this is exclusively fact. I will let you know when I'm inserting my opinion. These are just facts about this book that we as Christians claim to be inspired by God and reveal uh, who his son is. And so I'm going to go quickly. I want to talk about this book. Let's start with the fact that the Bible is broken up into two primary covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Both of them were good, and, uh, but one is better. But one, the old one, the law, is, uh, it was good, and it was good for a time. And sometimes we hear the law and we think like, oh, that's old religiosity. Actually, it was what God instituted. It was the way that God was uh, relating to his people for a very long time until he sent the more full, complete, permanent covenant, which is Jesus. And another way to translate covenant is testament. And so we have the Old and the New Testament. Uh, The Old Testament makes up about 75% of the Bible, although the average Christian spends very little time in the Bible as a whole, but spends about 5% of their time reading the Old Testament. So 75% of the Bible, but we spend about 5% of our time there. Uh, The Bible is made up of 66 books, 39 of which are in the Old Testament. And it's written almost exclusively, the original uh, text was written almost exclusively in Hebrew, except for a few chapters that were written in Aramaic. And you can break up the Old Testament into four primary, I mean, you can break it up a lot of ways, but four primary genres or types of writing. First, you have the law which is the first five books, um, and it's laying laying out that covenant. And then you have history, which goes Joshua through Esther, and then you have the wisdom literature, so you've probably heard of these, like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And then you have the prophetic writings, which are Isaiah through Malachi. 
Now, this will not be on the test, but here's what I want you to gather this morning. This is a life-changing book. This, having a relationship with this book, or at least the author of this book, is life-changing. And then you go to the New Testament, and that's about 25% of our Bible, 27 of the 66 books. Um, and it can also be broken into four primary genres. Number one is biography, or we call them the Gospels. Number two is history, which is the book of Acts. Number three is letters, which a lot of which uh, were written by this guy named Paul. And then the fourth is just another single book, but it's uh, apocalyptic, which is super fun. And it's the book of Revelation. And, uh, and so you can break up both Testaments into four types of genres. And it's really, really important to understand the genre that you're reading in understanding the Bible or how you're supposed to be reading that specific part of the Bible. Now, I want to talk about, because there's not a better or worse part of the Bible, but man, if there is like a crux of our faith, it's in those biographies that are at the beginning of the New Testament. It's in the, the Gospels. And so there's four of them. Uh, four written by four either eyewitness accounts or um, people that had interviewed and done lots of research to figure out what they were going to say. And the first one is Matthew. And Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. It is great. It was written by a uh, disciple of Jesus, Matthew. And uh, it's a phenomenal book if you're both familiar with the Old Testament or you want to be familiar because Matthew is always referring back to the fulfillment of this prophecy, or remember when Moses said that, or remember how Isaiah said this was going to happen. It's a great book to read, not only for Christians, but it's a great book to reveal Jesus as Messiah to both Jewish and Islamic people, because uh, Muslims and Jewish people believe either parts or whole of the Old Testament, and Matthew does an incredible job connecting the Old Testament to the person of Jesus. Uh, the next one I want to talk about is Luke. Love Luke. Um, it's one of my four favorite gospels. And Luke does this, thank you, I'll be here all week. <laughs> Luke does this incredible job of giving you so much context. And you can tell, although he was not an eyewitness, Luke did a great job of interviewing so many different kinds of people to get the full story of what he was going to write down in his gospel. And between his first and second work, which is Luke and then the book of Acts, uh, Luke names 32 countries. 54 cities, and nine islands without error. So Luke not only cares spiritually about what he's writing, but he's caring about the historical and the geographical accuracy as well. We can really trust Luke because Luke did his research. Uh, the final of the four Gospels is John, or the, the fourth one. And John was also a disciple. Uh, this is a great book to read if you're just new to Christianity. Uh, John really, it's different than the other three Gospels, but he looks at everything through kind of a spiritual lens, and he's talking about not just the physical man of Jesus, but the spiritual aspect of him, and, and the fact that we are not just physical, but also spiritual as well. And uh, it is the, my favorite book to give to someone who's never read the Bible before. And then finally, uh, the last one that I want to talk about is Mark. And we believe that Mark, or John Mark, actually borrowed from Peter, and so John Mark was not an eyewitness, but he, instead of interviewing lots of people, it seems like he interviewed one primary person, which was Peter, one of the core three disciples and best friend, one of the best friends of Jesus. And the other reason that you would want to read Mark is if you're just a little lazy, because it's by far the shortest. And Mark does a great job of getting to the meat of things. And so these four accounts 
There's no scripture that is more or less inspired, but these four accounts hold the crux of our faith. They talk about this Jesus, and they talk about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah that everyone had been waiting on. Also, because it's the crux of our faith, we've got to figure out, are these four books actually truthful? Do these, can we really trust these four people? Can we trust that they recorded things accurately? Because honestly, there are some stories in there that are told 99% the same, but man, there's a couple details that are different. And some people would look at the outside and say, man, that's reason for not believing in this book. But I want to, I want to ask you this. Let's just say, for instance, that um, if you were to leave church today and like usual, the news is outside because they want to know what happened here at Shakespeare Theater. And, uh, and one of your friends walks up to a reporter. They grab them and say, hey, I heard God's moving at this church. It's new. It's great. Tell me what happened today. Tell me what happened at City Church. And your first friend would say, oh, man, worship was great. This guy talked about the Bible. Coffee was good. The worship, though, the presence of God was there like nothing I've ever experienced. And I felt like God was even speaking specifically to me. And the reporter would say, oh man, thank you so much. Sounds like it was great. And then your other friend walks out and says, hey, tell me what happened at City Church today. And this friend would say, man, like worship was really good. The guy talked about the Bible. It was okay. Um, but man, the, there was a conversation I had in the lobby that was just so fascinating. I was talking to someone after church and, and something that they said to me, something they prayed over me in the lobby, I think is going to change the rest of my week. And the reporter would say, oh man, thank you so much. It's good to hear from you. And then they, they interview you, and, and you're smart. And so you would say, man, the lobby was great, and the worship was great, but that speaker, oh, man, he was so good. Handsome, too. And, uh, and you would go on and on about, man, he talked about the Bible, and I'm so intrigued about this book. Like, he talked about how this thing could be trusted, but also not just trusted for the sake of knowledge, but life change, and it leads us into relationship with Jesus. And that, he was so handsome as he was doing it. And you just go on and on about the message. What would that reporter conclude? Obviously, two of you were lying, right? Because there's no way that you guys are going to the same experience. Or is it possible that the differences of views actually lends more credence to the fact that it really happened? Because if I was going to make this up, I'd get everybody in a room and I'd make sure somebody said the words out loud and we all dictated exactly what we were going to write down. But if it was true, and if it was written uh, not at the same time, but by this guy at this year and this guy at this year, if that really happened, I would actually expect to hear mostly the same stories with potentially a couple details that are different. And when you line up the Gospels, none of them contradict but we do get into some instances where it's like, man, I can see their personality coming out and how they wrote this, or I can see the language difference in how they depicted this. And the crux of our faith is, uh, is not just on the truthfulness of the Bible, but specifically on the truthfulness of the Gospels. And did Jesus really live, die, and was he resurrected? And is he coming back? And I would look at these four accounts, these four biographies, and say, man, the rest of it is so good. But this seems to be really, really true. And then there's a history book after that. It's the book of Acts. It talks about how the church goes from 120 to all over the world. Make a great 
church series for us. Uh, then there's the letters, 21 letters that are written to churches and individuals. Uh, 13 uh, of them, it's, uh, I think it's 13, are uh, written by a guy named Paul. We know Paul. And, uh, and so a lot of those were written by him. Here's an interesting fact, though. Of the 21 letters that were written, 17 of them were written to churches or communities. Four of them were written to individuals. It seems like Christianity is a team sport. It seems like following Jesus is more communal than sometimes we play it up to be. Because out of the 21 letters, 17 of them are meant to be read aloud and to be followed as a community. And, uh, and man, if it really like ruffles my feathers when I hear, like, look, I'm good. And it's not about our church, but it is about the church. And when people just say, like, I think that my thing with Jesus is just me and him. And that sounds so great and spiritual until we see that actually we were meant to do this together. We, the church was meant to be uh, together. The community was meant to follow Jesus as a whole. We were meant to spur one another on. And 17 of the 21 letters are addressing not a person, but a group of people. And then there's the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic. Uh, it's going to sound funny, but don't start there if uh, you're new to the Bible. It is a tough uh, book to understand fully, but it talks about the coming of Jesus uh, for the second time, and it's going to be amazing. Here's the crux of this morning. This is a life-changing book. Having a relationship with the author and the main character of this book is life-changing, and it's through the Bible that we get to learn more and more about the guy that we claim to follow. There are uh, accusations, again, st still a little bit more context, accusations of errors. Um, for a long time, the oldest manuscript we had of the Old Testament was written in 895 AD, which was a long time ago, but it was still 1,300 years after the Bible was, uh, the Old Testament was initially closed. Um, but we were taking that, comparing it to all kinds of different um, uh, old manuscripts that we had because we don't have the originals. Um, and that's, I know that's tough to hear sometimes if we don't have the originals, but we're comparing this old one and that old one. And in general secular history, you claim to have uh, the truth of the original if you can compare five, hopefully ten, and they say the same thing. It's how we've, uh, we scholars, it's how they've treated uh, Homer's Odyssey, it's how they've treated the writings of Socrates as, man, I hope we can have five, hopefully ten, um, but if they say the same thing, we can trust that this is what the original said. We had thousands. We had thousands. And yes, the oldest one was written about 1,300 years after the Old Testament. Until one day in 1947, some kids were throwing rocks around the Dead Sea. They threw a rock into a cave. I guess he missed. Heard the shattering and uh, what scholars consider the greatest archaeological discovery was made then, at least in the 20th century, if not ever, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this was a pivotal moment because these were not written in 800 AD, but 200 BC, about a thousand years different. And I imagine, I wasn't there, but I imagine every Christian held their breath as you compared what we've long considered scripture to this now older probably more accurate because it's closer to the time it happened, writing that we found. And they found it was 99.5% identical to what we've had over the last 1,000 years. Guys, it's amazing. God has actually preserved his word. 
and I know it's killing you what that other 0.5% was. The 0.5%, are you ready for this? It was uh, punctuation differences, it was spelling differences, and it was grammatical structure of sentences. Not one primary, secondary, or tertiary doctrinal difference was found. Over a thousand years of spanning, God has honestly preserved his word. This is a life-changing book. The archaeology of the Bible has always been really fascinating. Um, archaeologists have often, this is kind of the thing we do, is they find something and then they're like, look, the Bible's not true. And then 20 years later they dig again and they're like, ah, oh, dang it, it is true. And, uh, and archaeology has often been trying, it seems like trying, to disprove um, that the Bible might not be trustworthy. One issue was the Hittites, Genesis 23, but also 2 Samuel. It talks about this people group that were relatively unknown to the ar archaeological world. And, and so they came to the Christians and they said, hey, guys, we're so sorry. They weren't sorry. We're so sorry, but we can't find the Hittites. It seems like your Bible might not be true. Until 1906 in Ankara, Turkey, they discovered a flourishing mid-2nd century B.C. colony that fit exactly what the Hittites were described as. The other one that was really tough was the Pool of Siloam. In John 9, 11, Jesus heals a blind man, and I want you to skip past that miracle. And he says, I want you to go wash in the Pool of Siloam. And for the longest time, archaeologists said, hey, Christians, we are so sorry. They weren't sorry. But we can't find this pool of Siloam. It seems like your guy John lied, and it probably brings down the whole crux of your faith. Until in 2004, when they were doing a water main excavation in Jerusalem, and wouldn't you know what they found but the pool of Siloam. But the big one was Jericho. I know we all know this. We've all read about this probably this week. The big one was Jericho. We can't find Jericho, therefore the Bible must not be true. And this one lady specifically, Kathleen Kenyon, said, look, we found Jericho. Uh, they found it in the mid-50s. It is way too new for what your Bible describes. I'm so sorry, Christians. They weren't sorry. But your faith must not be true, or at least your book must be false. Until 1997, when they were digging again, and they discovered a thriving city in 1500 B.C. fitting the exact location and the cultural uh, detail of what Jericho would have been like. And they found other things. They found, and, and they were looking, and they're like, it looks like the wall. This is a true story. I don't make this stuff up. They look like the wall around this city didn't fall over time, but it all collapsed on itself in like a moment, except for one part of the wall that actually seems like it did fall slowly over time, but it, was remain, it remained standing for a bit. And if you're familiar with the story of Jericho and Joshua marching around it, and the wall all fell down in an instant, except for one piece of it, that God fulfilled his promise to a woman named Rahab and said, I'm going to um, fulfill a covenant through you and your family line. Guys, this is a life-changing book. And we don't have favorites in proving the Bible, but my favorite is prophecy. We're almost at relevance. My favorite is prophecy because if a divine book is going to be true and it's going to claim things about the future, then the only way that all of those can be met is if there's actually a divine power that's moving and protecting and guiding the author of that book. And in the Old Testament, we have 1,239 prophecies. In the New Testament, we have 578. All of them 
that ha could have happened by now have happened. And specifically, I want to talk about the ones around the Messiah. There were over 300 prophecies that were made about the coming Messiah. A few of them were in Psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 34. It talks about the Messiah, how one day um, he is going to have his garments divided and how he was going to die, but not a bone in his body was going to break. And both of those things, if we read the gospel accounts that were written a thousand years later, both of those things are true. But the one that gets me is they said that he's going to die, he's going to have his hands and his feet pierced. And that's crazy because that doesn't kill somebody. I mean, it sounds painful, but you don't die just by having something uh, gone th go through your hands. And here's the crazy part, is they start to describe crucifixion a thousand years before it happened and hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. If you're going to make this thing up, you've got to play the numbers. You've got to play the numbers and say, what's the most likely way that someone's going to die? And you wouldn't invent something that has not been invented yet. There were over 300 prophecies made about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled every one. This is what mathematical, like statisticians, would classify as statistically impossible. Guys, this is a life-changing book. And it's not just a spiritual book. This is a historically, archaeologically, prophetically, supernaturally authored series of books that has stood the test of time. This is a life-changing book, and it's not worth giving your life to, but it's worth giving your life to both the author and the primary character of it, which is Jesus. And it testifies to the truthfulness and to the life of Jesus. And so, our faith is crazy because we believe that this book leads us into truth. And, uh, and relevance is that we want to have a good, healthy relationship with this book. It's going to be a primary thing that we do here. If you're new, we really, really like the Bible. The Bible is not a part of the Trinity. It's still the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We love the Bible only because it points to the Godhead Trinity. We love the Bible because of who it introduces us to. We love the Bible, and we want to read and have a relationship with the Bible because it points us to Jesus. And we cannot have uh, an intimate relationship with Jesus without having some kind of relationship with the Bible. And here's why. That sounds maybe a little brash. is because it's all we've got. I mean, all we have in terms of, like, eyewitness accounts are found in the Bible. And I believe that Jesus is showing up all over the place, and we hear stories of the man in white coming to the Middle East. But if I'm going to put my faith in something, I want to know that it's been historically vetted. And we love the Bible because it points us to Jesus. Uh, we read the Bible um, both corporately and personally. It's something that can be both done here and on your own. In 1 Timothy 4, he says, I want you to read this word publicly. But in Psalm 119, he says, I want you to hide this word in your heart. So I love the Bible because it's something that we both want to discuss and talk about in here, but also on our own in our own place. Uh, we read the Bible humbly. We approach the Bible um, with one primary goal. We read the word of God so that we get to know the God of the word. We don't read it to puff up knowledge. We don't read it so that we can do better in Bible trivia. We don't study it because um, it would be impressive or we can, you know, beat non-believers over the head with it. 
Uh, we read the Bible purely because we want to get to know the guy that wrote it and the guy that it's about. And we read it humbly out of that posture. Uh, we read the Bible not just in moments of peace, but we love the Bible in moments of chaos and in moments of battle. Ephesians 6, this is my first circular reference, by the way. Every other part, the Bible can be proven outside of itself. But I love the Bible because the Bible says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces. I can't tell you how many times the Bible um, or some specific passage has been really, really true to what I was living later on the day from what I read that morning. I can't tell you how many people um, that have struggled with nightmares and, uh, and they've come and we've prayed over them and we've said like, okay, you know, in Jesus' name, uh, we protect their sleep, but we, we also ask them to read Psalm 91 at night. And I can't tell you how many people have been set free from nightmares. If that's you, we want to pray, and, and I want to encourage you, read Psalm 91. There is a passage that is protecting over us. There's a passage for so many things. And so we read the Bible not just when it's peaceful, but also in moments of battle. This is uh, important. We read the Bible, and we want to have a relationship with the Bible, and we want to study the Bible carefully, eagerly, and in context. And this is big. This is big today. Cults and false religions and overly progressive and overly conservative theology have come from misinterpreting the Bible. And we don't want to just say, well, it's caused some harm, so let's get rid of it. But it's when we read the Bible as a whole, and it's when we read it in context, not just literally, but literally for what it was intended to communicate, we start to see actual change happen in our world in the direction that we want to go. And there's so many mistakes that have been made by reading just a little piece and building your whole faith on that or building a whole movement on that. And it's often when we read the whole thing and when we understand the whole thing, and that's hard, guys. This is hard work. It is part of my job. Like, this is what I get paid the big bucks for, is it's hard to understand all of the Bible. I believe that you could pick up this book and, like, never read it before, and it could change your life. And I also believe it's really tough to understand some pieces. And there's sometimes a bit of shame or guilt that comes from, I just don't feel like I know what it's saying. And it's part of the reason why we love not just the word on our own, but we love the word in community. And we love hashing it out with each other. And we love leaning into what each other know. It's so, so important that we read the Bible in context, because when we read it at a specific point in a literal way that might not be literal to what the author intended, we can see throughout history, large, large mistakes have been made. Uh, finally, we read the Bible um, because we want to be ready for action. Again, we do not just read this book so that we can be smarter. We don't just teach this book on Sunday mornings so that we can be a more educated church. We want to read this book so that it introduces us to the author and it can change our lives. We so believe that we want to not just be people that get puffed up in knowledge, but that actually hear this book and say, man, that is for me right now. That could change my life right now. Because for thousands of years and for billions of people, 
the Bible has changed their life. Not just the book, but the, the character in the book. This man, Jesus, has been changing lives for 2,000 years. And we love the book because it introduces us to him. Uh, my friend was telling me a story a couple months ago. He was telling me a story of a guy that he knows in India. Uh, he was, used to be, a, at the time that he told the story, he was an 18-year-old kid, and he radically came to know Jesus. I mean, it was a crazy, like, uh, he's on the border of India and Bangladesh, and he felt like God was telling him, you need to take this book, you need to take the Bible into Bangladesh, which was a closed country. And, uh, and so he gets a bunch of Bibles together in the native language, and he starts highlighting like certain verses that he wanted uh, these people to read. And uh, under the cover of night, he goes into the Bangladeshi River. And as he's going in, uh, the guards or the border police start to kind of close in on him. And so he's holding something illegal, so he just chucks it. And he throws it into the river and just thinks, I'll come back and get it. And uh, the police catch up with him, but everything's fine because he wasn't doing anything. He had nothing on him illegal. And uh, he went back the next day to find his bag, and he couldn't find it. And this is a true story. He's so bummed because um, that was kind of expensive to get all those Bibles, and he highlighted all those verses, and he even wrote the city that he lives in and if they wanted to find him and come back. And uh, weeks go past until one day he gets a knock on the door, and somebody said, are you the man that owns this book? And he looked down, and it was one of his Bibles. And uh, he thought this was the end. <laughs> but... Uh, he said, yes, uh, that, that is mine. He said, I've been looking everywhere for you. He said, I've been searching all over the place to try to find, why did, why did you not write your address? You only wrote your city. And it's probably for reasons like this, that he only wrote the city. He said, we've been looking everywhere. He said, this book has been changing my life. He said, this book has introduced me to Jesus. I must know more about Jesus. He said, it's so changed me that I gave it to my father. He's the, um, he's the chief of a village. Uh, across the river. And he's started reading it, and it's changing his life. He must know more about Jesus. And he started to tell four other chiefs of tribes around them. All five of us must know more about this man, Jesus. We've been reading this Bible. Please come and tell us everything that it means, because we want to follow Jesus. And today there are a thousand house churches in Bangladesh that started from this one moment. Guys, that's incredible. This is a life-changing book, and just simply the book can change, not again because it's holy, but because it introduces us to a Jesus who is worth following. And there's a thousand house churches that are growing and moving under the cover of Bangladesh that are thriving and baptizing people into faith in Jesus because of one boy's faithfulness, but because of one, and also because of one life-changing book. And, uh, and so throughout this series, we're talking about what's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, I want to acknowledge, especially if you're new, it's a little crazy that we believe in such an old book. But the deeper and deeper I look into this book and the claims that its uh, author makes, the more and more rational it seems. And it's a part of our faith that is a little crazy to the outside world, but I would argue actually is quite rational the more that we dig into it. And we want to have a relationship. We want to teach this book again, say it for like the 10th time, not because we need to be smarter or have better answers, but because we desperately want to follow the man that it's about. At City Church, we are all about Jesus. 
And we love digging into his life and the things that were said about him and the prophecies that were made of him. We love to follow Jesus because we think he is the most beautiful man that's ever lived that leads us into the fullness of life. And so we're going to, um, we're going to go into worship, but we're going to do something a little different to end. I wanted to just hear the word. And, uh, and we're going to have four people come up and they're going to read different passages of the Bible. Um, but I want us to just be quiet. We can be silent. And I want you to just let the word kind of wash over you. And I want you to hear the things that God has both spoken to us, but about his son. And so um, if the band wants to come up, and I'd love for everyone to just bow their head, and we'll be silent as we just listen to what the word says to us.